Welcome to the Westside Investors Network, WIN, your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. And now your hosts, AJ and Chris Shepard. Hi, this is Chris Shepard. Just a disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are for educational purposes only. They should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any shares or securities, make or consider any investments, or take any other actions. Thank you and enjoy the show. We've got Paul Hasbrook on the show today. Paul is the founder of 6-4 Asset Management. Today, he'll be talking about his CRM and how to get detailed information out of investors how he categorizes them and matches them with a specific investment type. He also shares the similarity of managing multifamily to a hospitality-driven investment. So let's welcome Paul. All right. Well, today we've got Paul Hassebrook with us. He founded 6.4 in 2019 and is formerly from the financial planning world. But one of his great things is he's raised over $25 million for projects. Paul, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and kind of what I did not catch? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I appreciate you guys having me on. I am a real estate syndicator. We're primarily focused on multifamily. And how I got to where I'm at today, like you said, came from the financial planning world. So I was from the Midwest and had a business there. And we were helping high net worth people with their investments. And they kept getting hit up by people like me now to invest in their deals. And I was doing due diligence, helping them out and really decided there was something there. And so I started syndicating my own deals, started out with a developer partner and did some private equity stuff too. It wasn't all real estate, but we, we would go back to whoever needed the capital and say, Hey, I've got a network of high net worth individuals. Why don't you let me help you raise the money and I'll be the investor relations part of your organization. And I did my first multifamily deal in 2016 and like instantly fell in love with the asset class. I'm a pretty conservative investor, so I love cash flow. Yeah, so that's what we're doing now. I I relocated to South Florida. I'm in South Palm Beach County, but investing somewhat in the Midwest and in the Southeast United States. That is awesome, Paul. So you took that transition with after working with high net worth individuals and you transitioned from the financial world kind of into syndicating real estate. Can you tell us a little bit more about like what that process was like and you know, what, what your mindset was and how, how you made and got prepared to make that transition? Yeah, I think, you know, part of it with the financial planning world was Not that I was necessarily burned out, but I sort of felt like I had been there, done that. And my business partner had offered to buy me out. And I thought, well, that's a unique opportunity to maybe reinvent myself or or like do something else. And, And then what would I do? You know, and I love numbers. I love investment analysis. And, and I really love the experience that I had in private equity and multifamily real estate. And so that's, that's how I pivoted into it. I decided to take my 15 years experience working with high net worth investors and just refocus on commercial real estate instead of, you know, stock portfolios. That's great. Did that like opportunity kind of present itself to you or were you like looking for that? No, I went out looking for it. I was really trying to think about what I would want to do or be and some of the most fun I had had 
in recent times wasn't helping people figure out how much life insurance they needed to buy. It was when I was doing some of those syndication deals. And I just decided if I, and I was doing a couple deals a year while being a financial planner and running that business. So we could have continued on that path, but I thought what would happen if I just focused on real estate full time? What could I achieve? And that was how I decided to take on the challenge was to seek it out and, and focus on it and see what I could do with it. So having that 15 years of experience in financial planning, I guess one of the biggest roles of a financial planner is to get assets under management. And that's, that's kind of the mantra of, of the financial planner. Am I correct there? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I just, yeah. Plan, planners, planners get paid based on assets that they manage. So if you've got a $5 million portfolio, you're going to be more attractive to a financial planner than say a young doctor who maybe makes a lot of money, but doesn't really have any savings yet. Yeah. And, and so like during your 15 year career, you were working on building more like finding more clients and getting more assets under management, like essentially finding investors or with portfolios to manage. Correct. And so you have 15 years of experience, like talking with high net worth individuals and like that's something that most normal real estate investors don't really have, like all that experience. And yeah, I, I see that as a pretty awesome like job experience to come into this world with when it comes to being able to communicate and speak that language. That is a great thing. So I'm more interested about that. And like, what, where do you think that that kind of gives you an advantage over, you know, say another syndicator who doesn't have that experience? Yeah, I think for not necessarily everyone, but a lot of real estate investors, their biggest bottleneck is capital, right? And it's a good time right now because so many people are looking to put money into multifamily, self-storage, these types of asset classes. And I've built 6-4 Asset Management focused on the investor. I started with the investor portal. Like one of the most important things to me was having a good CRM system and saying, how am I going to target these people? How am I going to stay in touch with them? Let them know what I'm doing. And in particular with high net worth people, you think about who's soliciting them. If I don't have a personal relationship with them, they're, they're judging me based on some of the shiny stuff. Like, is my website easy to use? You know, is the, is the backend easy to use? Does Paul do direct deposit and have e-signature? And so I built some of that stuff around sort of the mechanical part about what high net worth investors would want. And then the second piece of it, I think, is just having conversations and building those personal relationships, just like you would if you were selling, you know, high end cars or financial planning services to, to high net worth people. Okay. And so you were mentioning your, your CRM. And would you mind sharing like what your process is in terms of like from first contact to you know like what 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 you're actually doing and and you know has that changed at all since being a financial planner it started out exactly the same i think what changed for me was the pandemic and 
part of the reason I relocated to Palm Beach was there were so many events with like the hedge fund association and family office events. And so I was doing these in-person type of networking events where you're running into your ideal client and the same types of prospecting that I was doing as a financial planner. And what I've been doing differently over the last year is I've invested a lot more time into using my CRM system to create landing pages that automate capturing investor information and using LinkedIn to reach out to people and, and start to build, initiate and build those relationships online instead of in person at events. So, you know, as it relates to the CRM system, if you opt in on my website, you get added to, you know, a distribution list, and then you'll automatically start to receive some emails talking about how we approach investing and you know, why multifamily, those types of things. And based on how you, how you, the prospective investor, interact with those, you go down a different path within the CRM system. And, and I've been trying to keep that as automated as possible to, to help walk people through, through the process of becoming a, a partner in one of our deals. That's great. Sounds like you provide them with some education and some, some topics that they can learn some stuff from. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is I've found that, you know, like I've always had a niche with physicians and medical doctors and they've seen a lot of syndicated deals. So it's not like they need complete education on like, what is a syndication? You know, they're, they're saying, well, what is our pref? What's the split? You know, they kind of know what key data points they want to see. So I started to tweak things a little bit to help get a little more technical and maybe dig into some of the the stuff that we're looking at that maybe differentiates us from the next syndication offering. So you mentioned that, you know, doctors, you know, other kind of high income earners, they, they're seeing a lot of deals and, you know, you're creating kind of different paths. Is, is that one of the paths that you've created is for kind of the educated investor to, so that they're not having to go through all of that, like new, like newbie, information? Yeah, I don't want them to start to get basic information and then click the unsubscribe button before I get a chance to really engage with them. So I'm trying to, to deliver value. So they go down an, an experience path of either more of the basic investor or even someone who's looking for networking in a mastermind. Um, I run a meetup group here in Palm Beach for multifamily investing. So there's kind of that path. And then all investors, I also, just my own preference is to start categorizing them based on whether they're more of a growth investor or an income investor. Because I've got, I've got some investors that would be really happy to get solid rental income forever, you know, or like yeah. the next 10 years. And then especially I find with some of the, like, you know, this group of doctors I work with, they love three-year deals. Like they want to, they want to like build something. They're okay if, if there's no distributions while we're building it. And then when there's a liquidation event, they want to get paid for the risk they took during the, during the project. And, and so I, I kind of categorize them as like my growth investors, you know, versus more of a core investment that, that we might be buying because we like the, the distributions it kicks off. So what, what I tell people I'm doing is I'm looking for good investment opportunities and then I'm matching up the investor groups that need that opportunity, you know, and that's how we put deals together. Wow. That was just a 
ton of like awesome information right there for anyone who's trying to learn about fundraising. You're mentioning you're categorizing your investors and you're identifying what their, you know, their goals are and you're matching them with specific investments. It's like most syndicators that I know are like, here's the deal. Who wants in? Right. Well, and it's like you've created you've created this avatar of like who who is it that is you know your ideal client, and you've got these these two or maybe even multiple different tracks that like they can kind of fit into. It's very seems very customizable. I don't know how. I mean, investors, yeah, investors get to choose sort of what path they're on, or maybe they're not even choosing it. Maybe I'm just identifying where I think they fit, because when I have it, it what you just said is really important because a lot of syndicators will put a deal out and they're like, okay, I'm going to post it on Facebook and I've got 1500 connections. So let's see who will invest. But <laughs> number one, number one, it has to be a good deal. Like it, and it has to be something that people are interested in. And then number two, if it's an interesting deal and if it's a good deal, they have to be liquid. So, you know, there's, there's a couple hurdles to get through. And so, you know, what I've found is like understanding who that deal would be a good fit for helps save me time, right? Because I'm, I'm targeting someone who's looking for that type of investment. Yeah, hopefully it's helping. <laughs> yeah. So I would like to dive back in a little bit more on just like, you, you mentioned you're qualifying investors and then you're categorizing them. So do you want to describe in a little more detail, like what, I guess, groups or buckets each of your ideal clients are falling into? Well, I try to, with an initial couple questions, first of all, I always offer a phone call. So I'm really happy if I find an investor to spend some time on the phone with them and figure out if they're going to be a good fit. That was something we did in the financial planning world also. Like you don't want to work with someone who's going to be a pain in the butt or not a good fit, right? Or who's going to be unhappy. You want all of your investors or clients to be raving fans. And so I offer an introductory phone call. And then I would, during that call, make some very basic profiling questions like, have you invested in a lot of real estate before? What are you doing right now with your money when you need to put it to work? You know, those types of questions. And what I'm trying to do is automate even more of that with some initial email questionnaires. So the client, the investor creates sort of a profile, if you will. So we know from how they answer those questions, whether it's through a, a web form or the in-person interview to, to figure out where they're at in the process. I mean, if you tell me, oh yeah, I've invested in six syndications in the last couple of years, like I know that you know enough about what's going on that I don't have to spend a lot of time showing you what a syndication is, you know? Yeah. So when you're profiling an investor, I mean, you, you're mentioning, you know, how experienced they are, what their preference is in, in terms of like, how hard do they want their money to work and what's their risk tolerance? What else are you looking for in, in a profile to build it um, Yeah, do they need income now or later is a good question. And I also wanna know their, understand them and their spouse's occupation because you know, if they have other passive forms of income, then our real estate deals are that much more attractive because of the accelerated depreciation that we pass through. And a lot of times they understand that if it's a business owner who's, does your business own any property? 
you know, and, and start to understand where, you know, when and they might have cash to invest and how some of the tax benefits and the income benefits of direct ownership of real estate fit in with everything else they have going on in their financial life. Yeah, you're really getting detailed when it comes to finding that right person partner up with you on a deal. Mm -hmm. And that's like, I didn't know that there was that much detail in it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, I try not to make it too detailed, but I found, and maybe it's just my financial, you know, advisor training over the years that just, it just helps me know where people are at. So when I'm sending an offering out, I want it to be as focused as possible because we, once we send the initial email out, then we're going to follow up on that email. And, you know, and, and then the people that, depending on how they respond or don't respond, that can develop into a call list when we're raising equity. And so you don't want a 1,200-person call list <laughs> of people if, if half of them aren't interested in, like, a hotel or self-storage, you know. So you want to know what they're looking for and, and how what, you're, what you have available could help them. Yeah, that yeah. sounds like it cuts down on on your work when you're like really trying to raise money. That's I, mm-hmm. I like that a lot. We talked about kind of investor profiles, and then do you want to kind of dive into the assets or the deals and how those might match with your investor profiles? Yeah, kind of transitioning into that, I think the second part of what I'm trying to do with my CRM is demonstrate our expertise. So sharing emails or information about existing projects, letting people know, you know, what's happening, even if maybe they're not directly invested in it, like we're, we're liquidating a property right now in the Midwest. And so letting people know, hey, here's what's happening in our world. And that helps generate conversations where people will, you know, reach out and say, oh, you're, you're selling that one. What are you going to do next? Or, you know, and it, it, it starts those types of those types of conversations. I think one thing that's important in, in any business is trying to stay focused on and, and not try to be everything to everybody. And so for me, it's multifamily and my secondary interest is in hotels. We, we have one and we'd like to add some more. And so that's why I talk to people about and they know, I think when I reach out to them that we're going to stay in our focused area of expertise and because they, they're going to write checks, they're going to make investments if they know that you're going to be successful, right? They want, to, they want to believe that you know that area and that you have an edge there. Yeah. yeah. Having, a, having a track record to show that you've, you've been there, you've done that, and you're, you're continuing, yeah. to, continuing to do more. Yeah. So I told you I bought that hotel in 2019, and I had just sold the financial planning business my, to my partner, and I had been talking to people about multifamily and the success we had with multifamily. And then I called everybody or emailed everybody and said, we're buying a hotel. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, well, what do you know about hotels? <laughs> right? So we had to walk, I had to walk them through why the similarities of why I wanted to do this project. And it wasn't like a layup by any means to, to yeah, get investors <laughs> on board because I had to help them understand what about the deal, you know, made it a good investment for us. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more, tell us a little bit more about those conversations that you had to have because you were going into like a different asset class. And as well, what you learned 
about, you know, how you might do it differently after going through that experience that was not quite a layup. Yeah. If, if I was going to do anything differently, I think I would have just been able to, I mean, in every project, I tend to have different partners. And in that particular case, I wish I would have had more of like a hotel operating partner on board early on versus going on my own. I ended up retaining the seller as like co-asset manager to hold my hand through the transition and sort of reassure my investors like, hey, here's the similarities from multifamily to hospitality. It's a limited service hotel. It doesn't have a restaurant. We do like breakfast in the morning, but it doesn't rely a lot on convention type traffic. It's, it's like a business type hotel you would stay at along the highway when you're traveling. And so here's why we like it. Here's how the advantages it has over multifamily. And so we got the deal done walking them through what that was going to be like for them. And I don't know, I think now I hope on the next deal, it'll be easier because we, we've got a track record now. We've navigated through the pandemic. We didn't have to close. You know, we're, we're, we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, at least in our sales numbers. So hopefully the next one will be easier. <laughs> nice. Do you want yeah. to tell us a little bit about the type of hotel? I mean, is it more than three stories or is it kind of like a garden style or? I guess like yeah it's a, and then how does that compare to the multifamily that you've done too well it's funny because my friend i knew he owned hotels and a broker showed me one by me in south florida and i was looking at it and i went to my friend and i was like hey this there's i see a lot of similarities to multifamily like it kind of looks like multifamily but with quicker <laughs> turnover like help me understand <laughs> you know what i like or don't like and he had a lot of experience with hotels and had built some and had bought and basically fixed it, flipped some. And so we talked about that. This, this particular one is three stories tall. I'm not sure the height matters that much to me. What's important is it has 77 keys. And by having just like apartments, more of like that 80 to 100 or more rooms, you can get professional property management in place. And it, it makes it easier as a property owner because I'm not there, you know, operating it. And then it's, it's a limited service hotel. If you're not familiar with hospitality, the limited service hotels are like your Holiday Inn Express, the Spring Hill Suites by Marriott. Mine is a, a sleep in or a comfort in by Choice Hotels. And they offer really nice sized rooms. There's usually like a pool and a gym. We have on-site coin-operated laundry, but we don't have a banquet room. We don't do like weddings. We don't have a restaurant. It's not in a, tour, a very touristy area. So... Yeah. Kind of blue blue collar workhorse. uh, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's funny when the pandemic started and we went into that two week shutdown a year ago, leisure travel just shut off right away. But we had one company that was doing a infrastructure construction project in Iowa. They had 12 workers there during the week. So from Sunday to Thursday, they were buying six rooms and the guys were all doubled up in them. So when the pandemic started, they started buying 12 rooms and they were like an essential project, right? It was construction, working outside. So they never yeah. shut down. So that business traffic kept us going through the early stages of the pandemic. And now we're in the opposite situation where a lot of leisure traffic is coming back pretty strong, especially with spring break. So last week, last week, U.S. occupancy at hotels hit a high since the pandemic started and we're at about 85% of 2019. So there's been a big rebound in hotel traffic 
but business, the business traveler isn't part of that. <laughs> so what helped us early on, we're sort of working around right now because a lot of businesses are still working from home. They're not doing travel if they don't have to. So that's just the dy- dynamics of it. But my, my property manager has about 60 hotels in the Midwest they manage, and most of them are limited service hotels like that. So I feel like we're in a, a niche within hospitality that I've got really good experience with via my property manager. And it's something that we'd like to add more of because we, we like it. <laughs> I haven't really ever heard of a, a property manager who specializes in hotels or like limited service hotels. That's kind of a unique, just a very unique property manager. There, there can't be that many out there. Yeah, I actually don't know how many there are. I mean, there there are more smaller property management firms. I know, of, you know, that are, you know, more like one person was maybe managing four or five hotels versus a larger outfit. But yeah, they're, okay. I mean, I think they're around. And this is in like, you know, the, the upper Midwest and central Iowa. So it's not, it's not like there is a lot of touristy type people there, dark yeah. hotels there, you know. For sure. So earlier you had mentioned that you are getting or that you had or you're getting ready to send out an announcement that you're about to take a deal full circle and sell one of your assets that you syndicated. That's kind of like a a big event for any syndicator in their career. So what's what's that been like and how are you preparing for it? And, you know, what what's kind of your your mindset around it? You know, I think the biggest thing that I've been thinking about is that we're hitting all of our return metrics. <laughs> so mm-hmm. as far as when you're reaching out to these people, and in my case, I'm focusing a lot on more institutional investors like family offices to be able to demonstrate return track records. I think it's an important part of demonstrating my experience and, and what I've been through. So, Yeah, that's like huge. It is, <laughs> I mean... Being a syndicator ourselves, like we, you know, have talked with many, many investors and, you know, a lot of them want to see you take a deal full circle all the way through. And they're like, oh, well, call me when you fall <laughs> something. Call me in five years. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I mean, it's part, of, it's part of life, right? Like you have to have that experience. And if you don't, then you figure out other ways to communicate your value and, and what you're able to add, you know what you bring to the table if it's not having sold. <laughs> yeah. And so do you want to talk a little bit about that asset and maybe the, the types of investors that were attracted to it? Sure. It's a new construction project that we did in the Midwest and it was a developer. He was actually the landlord of our financial planning office in Iowa. And he said, Hey, I've got this deal I put together and he really, in my role in that transaction was as the investor relations you know, arm of it. So he was a developer builder. We partnered with him and my role as asset manager was making sure everything was on track and that the asset was performing. So the asset performed really well. I think it was 128 apartments. And then we had one other large investor in it along with you know a lot of what I call like, what I call now like friends and family money, like $50,000 checks, right? checks. So because of where cap rates are and how well the properties performed, I think it's three years. It it was completed in 18. So it's three years old. 
the developer G partner, my GP partner made the decision to sell it. So I wasn't as involved in that decision to sell, although I think it'll be good because investors, like I don't object because investors have had a really good experience. And so, you know, I think all of our goals as syndicators is to have investors have a good experience and now have this money coming back to them that they could redeploy into the next project. And that, that's probably the part of the, the whole life cycle of that building that I'm most excited about <laughs> is, yeah. is turning, turning it around and people, you know, having a good experience and wanting to invest into the next deal. So I guess for other, you know, people who aren't ex- as experienced, what does your investors having a good experience mean? Can you kind of like describe that a little bit more? You know, in, in my mind, it's me, the sponsor, delivering what I said I was going to do. So, you know, we underwrite conservatively. We're trying to, I still try to be as realistic as possible, but you don't ever want to be in a situation. Like, like with that hotel during the pandemic, like my first thought was, I do not want to do a capital call. Even if I asked my, my wealthy investor to kick $1,000 in, to help cover the mortgage payment for one month. It just, I don't think that that would be a good experience for them. And so achieving the rate of return, I think having good communication so they know what's going on. You don't want your investor partners to feel like, oh, I feel like I'm in the dark on this one. I haven't heard from you. What's, you know, I, I don't want them to call me and say, what's going on with this one? You know, I want to be proactively reaching out to them saying, hey, good news. Here's where we're at. This is what's happening. Yeah. Okay, so your first deal was, or I guess the first one that's going full cycle is that development. What was it like during the construction of that? I don't know. <laughs> it actually ended up being, to describe the project, it ended up being two buildings, built garden style. You know, they're, they're actually four stories tall, and they were designed to be, the capital call was spread out into two deposits by investors about six months apart. So we could get started on the first building, get that one closer. And so, you know, my role in that was investor communications, letting investors know how we were proceeding. The building was located in a fantastic area where there was a need for class A apartments. And so the first building, I think we had, if not fully leased up, we had indications of interest on every unit before it opened. Like there was, there was a lot, there was a lot of demand and we, and then I could share that with my investors. Hey, we, you know, we had 18 months for lease up, but we were fully leased within six months, which let the building run ahead of schedule, you know, as far as like cash flows and the profit of the building. With all the knowledge, you know, now what type of investor profiles would be most attracted to that kind of that particular project? And why do you think that is? I think a lot of people look at investing in like an index fund that tracks the S&P 500 as targeting like 11% per year. So the attraction to these syndication deals is trying to beat that <laughs> and, and yeah. get, get like a higher rate of return. And so I think people are either, I mean, like I said earlier, I think people are, I have them lumped into either growth or income. And there's a certain number of, of investors that might look at, at a deal and say, you know, if I can, if I could just beat the stock market and get like 14, 15%, I'm really happy. And they care less about cash flow. And then I, I've seen the first deal we did, I think the projected IRR, we said we could get 12. 
to investors and we delivered like 14. So they were happy. But what those investors in that project were, were more interested in was that it cash flowed. They wanted to get the regular quarterly distributions out of it. So it was a risk return profile that was different because it was tilted more towards income and there was a there was a smaller overall return on it, but it was concentrated on income versus maybe a development or like a heavy lift value add deal where you're going to go without income for a period of time, but you're, you're trying to hit a, a much higher IRR. Yeah. So when you're communicating that to, you know, an investor, like how do you communicate, you know, like this is a development, we're not going to see hardly any cash flow. Like how does it like show up on the page or the email that you're yeah. sending out versus the one that is, this is, you know, lots of cash flow, the big pref paid out quarterly. Yeah. But then a smaller appreciation. I try not to overthink it. And so if I'm sending an email out, I hope I'm hitting the right audience with the message of, hey, you know, we've got this value add deal. We're doing a deal right now in Georgia and Atlanta, the Atlanta market. I think the properties, I forget what the occupancy is in right now, but it's like 60%, let's say. It's a sick property. (laughs) It's not doing well. It's not operated well and the owner hasn't put enough money into it to try and fix anything. So, you know, this one isn't going to pay income for 24 months. Like we're thinking 24 months to renovate units, turn them over, get the rents up to market for a a healthy property. And, you know, then we're going to do a cash out refinance based on on the increased NOI and investors are probably going to get a big chunk or all of their capital back. And then it will shift over into paying cash distributions on the new, the new debt that's in place. So, you know, communicating that to an investor that wants to start getting income right away is it's not going to go as far, <laughs> but if I'm, yeah. if I'm delivering it to the right person, I just tell them, here's the, here's the return profile of this property. That's, I mean, when it comes down to a real estate deal, there's so many different ways to skin a cat. It's like figuring out, you know, who's going to mesh best with which deals and being able to clearly identify which investor is which and which deal is which is a huge offering that, you know, I think I'm really impressed with just kind of like that idea. That you yeah, have. I think a mistake I see other syndicators make is not, re- not staying in touch with prospective investors enough. And there's a group of people I mentor and I tell them, don't have your first call (laughs) to whoever you think might want to invest with you. Don't have that first call be, hey, I've got a deal and we're closing in 30 days. You know, you want to be able to communicate to them, hey, here's what we're looking for. You know, some people put together like a fake deal or like a model, like this is the type of deal we're looking for. So you can start to explain to your investors as you cultivate those relationships, you know, I'm going to call you soon. Here's what I'm going to have. Right. And then when you call them, you want to be able to say, I told you, (laughs) here's what I told you I was going to show you. Now I'm showing it to you. And now I need you to write me a check. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I've I've definitely given that advice out too, of like mock something up. And like, especially if you're trying to get into syndication is like, it takes money to invest into a new business. So if you're, if you're fully committed, like, go through, get all of the paperwork done, do it all on this mock-up so that you have something that you can talk to your investors, potential investors about and say, 
something's going to be coming up kind of like this. It's not going to be this, but it's going to be something like this. And that's a, a good yeah. way to talk to them. That conversation just started. Yep. And then once you have, you've done a couple, which is kind of where we're at is like, we're, we're sending them the past deals and we're like, Hey, these were, these are kind of like what our past deals are like. And, you know, we just want to let you know that those are going well. We can show you, you know, newer reports on those. And, you know, this is kind of our track record. So it sounds like you're, you're yeah. a, lot, a lot of the same. Yeah, I do. I do the same. And I, sometimes with a new investor who hasn't, you know, invested in one of our deals yet, I might share a memo an updated memo from one of the existing ones. And that has the effect of showing them how I communicate, what kind of communications they receive, and also sort of like a humble brag about <laughs> here's, one that's, here's, how, here's how this current deal is going. And yeah. hopefully we'll be able to replicate that in the future, you know? Yeah, I like that, the humble brag. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it's about time for us to, to move on to our final four. Yeah. All right. Um, all right. Are you, you ready? Let's do it. All right. So the first question is, what's one piece of advice you would give to your 25-year-old self? If I could, I would go back and tell myself not to settle. <laughs> not to settle. Is there a story behind that? No, I just think when you're younger, I think you have big dreams, but you also, I, at least in my own experience, didn't have a big enough dream to really understand what I could go after. And when you're building any business, whether it's a syndication, real estate investing business, or making widgets and selling them, it takes a long time to get there. And it takes maybe longer than you think it will when you start, but the payoff at the end will be even larger than you think. And so understanding that process, I was extremely impatient when I was in my 20s. And so I would, I would encourage myself not to settle and to not, not to undersell myself. Nice. That's yeah, great advice. Big. Chris and I uh, go through and make huge, we make goals every year and, and we do large goal planning and then like break it down. It's like, all right, if we want to be somewhere in 10 or 15 years, like how, what's the next, what's the minimum next step we need to do in the next couple weeks even. So. Yeah, that's awesome. I come up with these ridiculous goals. And I just shoot them down. Timeline, and it's <laughs> like, you can't do that. And I'm like, watch me or watch Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, sometimes we don't get there, but you know, when you reach for the stars, sometimes you get the moon. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yep. That's what right. I was going to say. So what was your first entrepreneurial endeavor? That's a hard one. I grew up in a family business. And so my parents owned a repair shop in rural Iowa fixing farm equipment. And when I went to school, they said, you got to pick a major. And I said, well, I, I think I just want to, I knew I wanted to be the boss, you know, <laughs> like I want to, there isn't an entrepreneurial degree. So I ended up with a business administration degree and I worked in some finance jobs. And then when I was 27, I started the financial planning business. I kind of grew up in that entrepreneurial self-employed world and launched my first venture when I was 27. Cool. There was a big entrepreneurships program at where I went to school, University of Arizona, and I, I didn't even know what it meant when yeah. I was going to school. I'm like, yeah, entrepreneurship? What is that? Uh, yeah. I'm kind of jealous of kids heading to school after like 08 because I feel like being an entrepreneur became really cool and everyone was talking about, you know, everything from side hustles to starting your own 
you know, Amazon store or whatever it is, you know, I'm older than that. So people didn't, it wasn't like that <laughs> back in the day. Yeah. We had a couple, like when I was a senior in 2007, I think that we had a business plan competition and it was pretty cool. I haven't made a business plan since. Since. <laughs> <laughs> All right, AJ, you're up. Yeah. Well, speaking about education, how has your formal and informal training shaped your journey? Yeah. When I look at my formal training, like college, perhaps the biggest thing I got out of that was my senior internship because I, I worked for a family that owned a car dealership. And it sort of in one way or another is how I ended up on this journey through financial services. And I don't know how much of my college degree I use. I have a liberal, liberal arts degree. So a lot of that is definitely not applicable. But informal training, I think it's just life's experiences and everything I learned building the financial planning business. And it's definitely everything I learned in that business has translated over into what I'm doing now with 6-4 Asset Management. So, Great. Wow. Okay. And I guess it has to be about real estate, but what, you know, was the one opportunity or the one deal that got away? Your, your Moby Dick. I don't know. There's been a lot. <laughs> I think one of the biggest eye openers for me moving to South Florida from Iowa is how differently business is done here. I mean, there's a lot of stuff done in the Midwest on a handshake. And I had lived here like two years and was writing at least a deal a month and constantly, especially on smaller stuff, losing, losing deals to people writing offers for $5 million cash, you know, stuff that I couldn't even compete with. And there's one in particular that I could almost see from my place. And I still wish I could have bought it because, you know, it was like, I was so close to it, so close to getting the deal done and lost it at the 11th hour because someone showed up with cash. So, yeah. That's South Florida. Yeah. It's competitive down here for sure. Well, you know, in 10 years, you'll be that person showing up with cash. Yeah, let's hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, Paul, just wanted to thank you so much for coming on. We really, really appreciate it. If any of our listeners want to get a hold of you and, and chat, what's a good way for them to get a hold of you? You can visit 64assetmanagement.com. I also have a personal website at paulhasselbrook.com with a lot of our networking and mentorship opportunities. And I'm really active online. So you'll find me on Facebook or LinkedIn or Instagram under Paul Hasselbrook. Hasselbrook's fun to spell and pronounce, but the nice thing is there aren't that many on those platforms. So if you search for Paul Hasselbrook, you're going to find me. Awesome. Well, yeah. again, thank you so much for, for coming on and sharing your wealth of information. I know that I've learned some stuff today, so I'm sure that other people have as well. Yeah. yeah. I was extremely impressed with your knowledge, you know, about investors and raising funds and, you know, I learned a ton, so thank you. Yeah. yeah, this was really fun. Thanks, guys. Yeah. All right. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast on WIN, your community for investing knowledge for growth. Please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone you know wants to be on, please go to westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form.